Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you? Happy Monday. It's April. Happy Monday. It is April. It's been April for a couple of days, but yes, it's definitely spring. Um, the, yes. poll- the pollen yes. is uh, on fleek, as the kids said 10 years ago, and um, my my sinuses are well aware of it. Yes. Thankfully, I... Um, I'm not in that situation, but I have been there before. I, I've, I've been taking a daily allergy pill for several years mm-hmm. um, since I discovered that I have rhinitis mm-hmm. as a result of um, pollen and whatnot. And so an allergy a day keeps the sinus problems away. Well, you are lucky. I also take an allergy pill a day. I have had sinus surgery. I have gone through two rounds of allergy shots, and I still sniffle as if I'm a four-year-old. So Mm. there you go. (laughs) So um, the world is once again burning. Uh, More shooting, more death, more gun violence, um, more black and brown people being gunned down in horrible ways. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm at the point where I am, I'm, I'm just lost on words. I, I, there's, I am, I am on empathy overload and my body Mm -hmm. is feeling that like deep in my bones. Um, And I don't know how to, I don't know how to, respond to that as someone who, you know, is deeply empathetic and really, you know, tries to take on that posture. It's, it's getting, um, it's getting to the point where I am having trouble breathing through it. And if that's the case for me as a white woman in this screwed up country, um, it just, I, my, my imagination can't even reach where Mm -hmm. the hearts and bodies are of of the people that are, that are being touched by this violence. Yeah. And you and I both live in the volunteer state mm-hmm. and the governor announced last week, uh, around a permitless open carry gun law. Correct. And, and also on the federal level, there is an attempt to kind of, tighten down on on gun freedom i guess and you know it occurs to me uh, you know having a gun in rural areas is a different conversation than having a gun in an urban town yes i think for some yes yeah perhaps there i mean i i know a lot of people who 
are hunters mm-hmm. and and that is how they mm-hmm. that is how they get their weekly provisions absolutely for example absolutely and i know those that live in urban settings who are also hunters who have land on the outskirts of that urban setting and you know maintain their shotguns and and their rifles and you know go out on the weekends and and in some ways um use their that shooting as a sport not necessarily per, for provision purposes but still in a way that is mindful and mm-hmm. conscientious of what the the point of that that weapon serves but not everyone yes and our state governor thinks that everyone should just be able to have a gun and open carry without a permit. That yes. seems to be the most ridiculous, like, just utterly awful. And it, it feels to me it is a situation waiting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I am watching from, you know, my vantage point as a pastor in the Christian church, um, conversations once again, rising up around leadership and pastoral leaders in these congregations, trying to determine how they're going to mitigate this kind of, this kind of, um, permission that's been given by the state legislature. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a whole lot of churches that don't want, um, weapons being brought on their on the their right. campus and on their property and there's a whole lot of universities and 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 public spaces uh, i mean our all of our anchor institutions our hospitals our universities our schools are no longer within the bounds of having protection around this and as you have said it, it is a situation waiting to happen and we, and we're just kind of wading through it as if we already know what the result's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, ri- it's ridiculous. Yeah. So that's, that's happening that's here happening. <laughs> and, Hi, and April. happening, happening in other places too. Right. Uh, we've still got a housing crisis in Tennessee mm-hmm. and in the nation. And I am on day five of sitting Shiva for one of my dearest, dearest friends who. I've known since my Chicago days, uh, Reverend Dr. Melissa Browning, and I just want to say her name um, because she is present with me um, and has been for the past five days. And uh, the world lost uh, one of the greatest influencers in the field of theology and ethics uh, and in the field of storytelling and community-based asset programming. the world lost a great fire. Indeed. May we remember her spirit fondly and with smiles and with Thanksgiving. Well, we are continuing our series this week uh, on standing in solidarity with our um, Asian American kin and family And this series has been one that we hope has informed the perspectives of many of you. Um, We know that there is, um, there is oftentimes an assumption 
around the monolithic understanding of black and brown bodies and black and brown culture. And we hope that this series has provided some insight for all of you into um, the ways in which these cultures and these bodies are so very different and so very beautiful and so very um, worthy of understanding. We also hope that you are um, beginning to understand how systemic violence and systemic racism is not simply a tactic used against black bodies or against brown bodies that are making the news every night. But it is a tactic that is used against all bodies that don't look like the body that this country was built upon to um, be the premier um you know, specimen of, of power, the black yeah. or the white landowning man who, um, you know, kind of brought every ounce of power into the conversation, every place that right. he went and many things haven't changed in that vein. And so this week we are extending that conversation. We're really thrilled that we are going to dive into this conversation with Dr. Laura Emiko Soltis. Um, Emiko is a, a Freedom University, the executive director of Freedom University, and um, makes her home um, in the South East, like we do, um, and is just a wonderful voice for um, around working class politics, around immigrant rights, around the role that the arts play in the conversation for our, our education system. Um, her work is, has been highlighted in a number of places, but today we're really, really grateful that her work is being highlighted here on the Activist Theology Podcast. Yeah, and let, and let me just say that I met Dr. Soltis a couple years ago when she and I were on a panel in Atlanta for the um, Human and Civil Rights or Civil Rights and Human Rights Museum. I, I get the name confused. But what was – you know, this this organization that, that we did a panel for, we, we did it a year later – um, as well um, this year, I think. And, you know, it, it's primarily organized by Black folks, but they are doing really important human rights and civil rights work, bringing in a variety of voices and highlighting the, the, um, the real differences in racial voices. And so, to have me on, a trans, queer, Latinx, and to have Dr. Soltis on, an Asian-American um, scholar and activist, was really important for this conversation that was held on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so I, I mean, as soon as we decided we were going to do this series, you know, we thought maybe it would only be four weeks, but really it's turning out to be like six or seven weeks and I knew, I mean, I've been wanting to have Dr. Soltis on the podcast since I met her two years ago. And and finally, we've, we've got her. And I'm so excited to be able to be in conversation with Dr. Soltis. She's a brilliant scholar, uh, brings to bear the importance of the working poor and the working class um, um, analysis 
and 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 really take seriously um, the role of popular education and liberationist philosophy uh, for immigrants. And um, I just feel really thrilled that that we have her not only added to this series, but hopefully she will become a friend of the podcast and will be able to return as we dig into other pressing social concerns, which we do every week. So super thrilled that Dr. Soltis is here. I can't wait to dig into the work. Dr. Soltis, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and deeply grateful to share in this space with you. Well, we are grateful as well. We'd love for you to take a few minutes to expound a little on our our introduction, our, our brief introduction of you. Um, let our listeners know a little bit about who you are, how you come at this work, um, where you find yourself um, in in this the world and and this conversation that we're having around uh, supremacy culture and and rights based activism. Absolutely, uh, I do want to mention that uh, this is the first time I've talked about anti Asian uh, hate violence. Uh, it's been almost a month since the shootings. Um, targeting Asian women uh, here in Atlanta um, on March 16th. And I've been invited to talk about this several times, but um, it was it was too raw and too painful. And luckily in the space of Freedom University, uh, we, we've just had this uncanny, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't call it luck, um, but fortune perhaps of having classes at the right time. Um, so Freedom University is a modern day freedom school for undocumented students who've been banned from the top public universities in the state and from in-state tuition throughout the state of Georgia. And our students uh, in line with our popular education framework choose their classes. My job as the executive director is to go out and find uh, you know, professors and uh, people who are committed to our students and providing them um, free access to college-level education, but our students decide that the classes they want collectively. And so in the spring of 2020, they actually wanted a health science course, and we invited professors of epidemiology <laughs> and health sciences from Emory University, and they were our professors um, as we entered a global pandemic. We couldn't have had better timing. And we always have a human rights course um, that I primarily teach and sometimes co-teach, and in the fall, we have a grounding human rights course uh, focusing on reframing the experience of undocumented people, uh, not in terms of, you know, quote unquote, illegality, but in a larger history of the United States um, and of the world and of human migration, and particularly reframing their experience, not in terms of civil rights and rights they have as citizens or non-citizens, but the rights they have by virtue of their humanity and their human rights under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a global human rights framework. So our fall class is really focused on the undocumented experience, reframing it, their, um, their oppression in terms of human rights violations, um, again, rather than kind of an internalized criminal, criminality. And we also really delve deeply into the experience of um, 
enslaved Africans and Black Americans in this country and the intersections of the banning of African Americans from Georgia public universities and its transformation into the banning of undocumented people who are overwhelmingly um, Latinx, Black and Asian. And so that was the grounding of our fault. And the students, based on that class, said, you know, we want to spend a little bit more time on um, the experiences, not in a black and white framework, but maybe like Latinx and Asian uh, experiences in the U.S. And so my job um, leading up into the spring 2021 semester was developing a Latinx and Asian American studies class grounded in human rights and human rights discourse. So I found a wonderful professor, um, Dr. Rudy Aguilar at Kennesaw State University to co-teach this course with me. And we decided to spend the first half of the course on Latinx history and human rights, and the second half on Asian American uh, human rights and Asian American studies in the US and put them in dialogue. And mid-semester was March 14th, which was also my birthday, <laughs> uh, Sunday, March 14th. And we grounded that class um, in Asian American studies, um, you know, introducing students uh, to Asian American studies. And, you know, several of our students mentioned too that, you know, while they may identify as Mexican or Mexican American or Latinx, many of them are actually um, Asian Mexican. So we have several mixed race students who are oftentimes Chinese Mexican, and that just happened to be the case. And that actually has a fascinating history too, after the Chinese Exclusion Act, many Chinese immigrants went to Mexico in order to try and get to the United States. Um, and that of course led to the creation of the Border Patrol in 1924. And we're gonna explain you know, all of that in our class and students were um, you know, really excited to learn about Asian American studies and intersections um, with the Latinx community, with the black community and their experience in the US more generally. And that was the context. Um, and we even read um, a, a grounding essay looking at uh, anti-Asian hate crimes and how they're fundamentally different than hate crimes against different groups. Not better, not worse, different. And I like how you frame this, that difference is okay. And talking about difference, we need to be more comfortable talking about it. Um, and again, just the type of racism that Asian experiences Asian Americans experience is different. And I'll go into more detail if you'd like as well, but that was the context of our March 14th class. And of course, two days later, there was um, a shooting um, in Atlanta that killed eight people, six of whom were Asian, Asian Americans. And there was also a bystander who was a Mexican from Veracruz um, who was shot and injured, um, who was just literally walking by. Um, outside of the, the spa. And so that occurred two days later. And, you know, all of us, it was not only, you know, a crime targeting um, Asian Americans, but Asian American women. Um, and it was, not only was that event painful, but of course how the police responded, how the press responded, as we know, the police described this violence by a 21-year-old white male as him having a bad day. Um, and I think for women, trans folks, femmes, we know <laughs> when um, toxic masculinity, there's a bad day, that, that often means violence against our bodies, but that it's possible and necessary to understand racist misogyny 
or gendered racism that we can understand. We must talk about them together. And the, the violence that Asian women experience are both racialized and gendered. And, and of course, um, you know, the focus on these shootings immediately turned to COVID in giving the mic to Asian men to talk about their microaggressions during COVID when this was absolutely gendered violence and male violence against women. And it's necessary to talk about both at the same time to understand what happened here in Atlanta. And we were so grateful for this safe learning space of Freedom U um, because, you know, the next week, you know, I kind of scrapped <laughs> what was in the syllabus to open up a space to talk about what had happened, to allow students to process how they were feeling, and to also bring in um, Sung Young Choi Morrow um, from Nepal. Um, and, and she was one of the most high profile um, Asian American women who, were, who was speaking on this issue nationally. And, you know, she came into our space and, you know, I think she, she was prepared to go through her talking points, but just looking at a Zoom classroom filled with young faces, young people of color who are undocumented, you know, holding their faces and listening wholeheartedly. Um, she was able to, one, swear freely <laughs> and also just, you know, process deeply um, the past week. And, you know, she broke down, I broke down, all the students, you know, were in tears and like loving tears for one another. Um, and, you know, after, um, you know, the shedding of real tears and sorrow, one of our students, um, Lorenzo, actually broke the silence. Um, he identifies as Indigenous Mexican, um, just thanking Sonyan for helping him understand gendered racist violence, um, that he had not understood this violence in terms of violence against women and how much he had learned from her sharing so openly. And, you know, I think I've always known and said that, you know, a freedom school um, that is focused on liberatory education, all the ways it benefits students, but I truly recognize how it really benefits and transforms everyone in that space, including faculty, including our staff, including our guests, when we're actually in a space where we are free to truly be ourselves and truly hear one another. Um, and again, also in your introduction, you talked about, you know, the return to normal in the last month has, has also meant a return to mass shootings and gun violence. And something I want to mention in, you know, grounding this conversation in Georgia and in the South, uh, and also to connect it to, you know, how is this connected to undocumented youth? Um, well, in April 2017, the Georgia legislature in the same uh, legislative season passed campus carry, allowing guns on our public university campuses while also passing the first and only anti-sanctuary campus bill in the country, which it already had a ban on undocumented students from public universities, but it went a step further to threaten any private university for declaring itself a sanctuary campus. Um, and it did not, of course, the Georgia legislature is not uh, introspective or has a historical understanding, but it was also the 100-year anniversary of a statute in uh, 19, oh, 1917 uh, that 
threatened to take away the tax-exempt status of any private university that admitted a Black student. So the Georgia legislature, of course, is just recycling and adapting racist laws and policies for a new uh, population, which, of course, um, the undocumented population serves a similar role, which is to provide free, um, cheap, exploitable labor, uh, but be excluded from the full benefits of citizenship and and human rights. And so, uh, you know, that that's our reality here in Georgia. We have guns on our public university campuses, but not undocumented students. And I think that that uh, comparison says everything about um, the state of Georgia and the state of um, the soul of our nation right now. Well, you know, Dr. Soltis, as, as I think about this, and this analysis won't be new because I said something similar when we were on a panel, but the Georgia legislature making that decision speaks to their 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 commitment to a very particular theological anthropology that particular bodies matter more than other bodies which which they see as disposable and don't count toward embodying an an, an anthropological imagination that is worth their time and I, I'm just wondering, because I always find this helpful when when you list off, um, what is the criteria again for basic human rights? And I'm just wondering, you know, I think you listed off five, the, the criteria, the five things. And I'm just wondering if for our listeners who may not be familiar with human rights scholarship or the work of human rights, um, we – you know, th- this podcast and this entire project is dedicated to connecting the dots for people. And so I'm just wondering if you could, again, mention the, that criteria. What what are the basic criteria for human rights? Absolutely. So the criteria that you're talking about are actually the five pillars of human rights or kind of the five uh, types of rights that are included under a larger human rights framework. And those five pillars of rights are political rights, civil rights, economic rights, social rights, and cultural rights. And I do want to mention historically, you know, that the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is kind of considered the grounding document in the modern uh, in modern human rights law. And that was proclaimed in 1948 um, after the founding of the United Nations. Uh, but prior to that was there was an appeal uh, to the world um, by W.B. Du Bois and other black scholars who were trying to use this burgeoning human rights language to advance the rights of black people in the United States. Um, Dr. Carol Anderson has done amazing work, um, Eyes Off the Prize, um, in that book in particular that looks at um, the human rights framing of, that African-Americans were using in the United States in the early 20th century and how that was narrowed into a civil rights framework, um, which is more based on the rights of a citizen in a particular country rather than political rights such as the right to vote, economic rights such as the right to uh, join a union, to fair pay, social rights like your right to education, cultural rights like the right to speak your own language, right? That is a more... Um, 
full definition of human rights. And also here in Atlanta, at the, the start of um, youth-led civil disobedience during the Black Freedom Movement, which was in the spring of 1960. As we know, February 1st, 1960 was a Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins. And that spread like wildfire. And here in Atlanta, there's a new organization called the Atlanta Student Movement. And in within a month, they were organizing and um, wanting to build off of this uh, new civil disobedience, lunch counter sit-ins, um, and direct action. And led by then uh, Rosalind Pope, now Dr. Rosalind Pope, uh, she wrote uh, and authored an appeal for human rights. And it was signed by numerous leaders in the Atlanta University Center, student presidents, and it articulated the full spectrum of human rights that were being violated against um, uh, African Americans in the city of Atlanta and Black people across the United States. And so it's critical to understand that this human rights framing has been central to the Black freedom movement, uh, and that especially young people and young people in Atlanta were using a human rights framework and a human rights language to frame their rights and the violations they were experiencing. So Rosalind Pope and the Appeal for Human Rights was looking at jobs and education and policing and housing. Right? Those don't fall under a specific civil rights framework. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, again, critical to understand um, the reason why you, know, you might confuse the Civil and Human Rights Museum, it's called the Center for Civil and Human Rights, but it was uh, an attempt to bring forth you know, the civil rights conversations and that framing that developed in the 1960s with a larger human rights framework. But one critique is uh, oftentimes human rights is considered elsewhere and civil rights here. But actually right. there have been decades of mobilizing, focusing on human rights here in the United States that the rights that human people have by virtue of being human, mm -hmm. right? And we have the right to education, for example, that is not recognized uh, in the U.S. Constitution or the U.S. law. Uh, the 1982 Plyler v. Doe Supreme Court case recognized the right to free K-12 education, but did not protect the right to higher education, which is why undocumented students, their access to higher education isn't protected under federal law. It is only K through 12. And that is why undocumented student access to public higher education is up to individual states. When, of course, we leave things up to individual states, we get a wide variety of laws. It's extremely confusing for undocumented people. And while 21 states allow undocumented students to access public universities by meeting state residency requirements, uh, there are three states that go beyond that and actually have a form of admissions ban against undocumented students. And that's South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. And of course, it is not a coincidence that those three states are in the Deep South. It is not a coincidence that the same public universities that ban undocumented students today also banned Black students in 1960. And those three uh, universities in Georgia right now are the University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, and Georgia College and State University. And so uh, I hope that gives a little bit more foundation to discussing human rights that Again, oftentimes we think of civil rights here in the United States and human rights elsewhere, right? When really, uh, if we are to honor uh, the work and the legacy of freedom fighters that came before us, we need to reclaim a human rights framing hmm. um, to, again, recognize our human right to education, <laughs> our human right to jobs, um, healthcare, um, our human rights to, um, yeah, speak our own language. Political rights are 
like the right to vote is not a civil right. And those are common misconceptions that keep us in a narrow focus of quote unquote equality under the law. When we know that we have criminalized people of color and then discriminate based on that new criminal status. And that is how we're able to have these incredibly racist policies without having to use the language of race. These bans against undocumented students, 99.5% of the people who are impacted are people of color. Right. About 80% of undocumented people are identify as Latinx or brown. Uh, 15% are Asian. Another 5% are black or identify as undocumented black and less than 1% are European. So we're able to ban an entire population of young people of color from access to public higher education. We're able to ban them from the right to vote. But with DACA, right, the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals program, which they pay $495 every two years to apply, they can legally drive to their low-wage jobs with a DACA program, with their temporary social security number, (laughs) with their driver's license, but still be banned from public higher education and the right to vote. And that is a an adaptation, modern adaptation of Jim Crow in order, again, to create an exploitable labor supply. (laughs) And we're able to do this without even using a language of race. And we absolutely have to understand how we have criminalized people of color in order to normalize and justify these historic ways of excluding people, right? So, uh, yeah, I hope that gives a little bit more context into Um, the historical use of the human rights framework and why Freedom University and many other organizations are reclaiming a human rights framework in order to frame the violations that our communities are facing. Yes, thank you. And, you know, Georgia has been in the news for quite some time and, and is back in the news. It never did really leave. But the you know, I, I saw on Twitter um, that a CNN um, anchor host said to Representative Jim Clyburn that what was happening in in Georgia seemed like Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Crow on steroids. And you have just articulated a, a very similar sentiment. And it occurs to me that um, we we use the language of supremacy culture because we know that it's not just racial supremacy, but it is also economic supremacy. It is a very particular political ideology that creates supremacy. Um, it is the remnants of settler colonialism, which creates a particular kind of supremacy. So we, we sort of come at this conversation – using the language or the phrase supremacy culture. And what you've just said is that um, these the, the modern adaptation of these laws is what creates conditions to exclude mm-hmm. and to marginalize and to and to really dispose of people. And the rationale, right? right? How the vast majority of the public sees these bans as okay because inherently the rationale is that these aren't human beings that we're banning from college. They're right. criminals. Right. right? And, and understanding how criminality functions in racialized exclusion and how, again, it's yeah. adapted to our modern time, both brings in the work of um, Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow, right? And her incredible work focusing on, um, you know, what she 
calls the re-enslavement of Black people, but it right. is through criminalization, right, and the war on drugs. But this happened simultaneously as the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border in 1965 and the criminalization of immigration, right, that these two things happened after these major victories as a result of the Black Freedom Movement and the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. So, again, understanding how racism, not only racism adapts, but how white supremacy and supremacy culture adapts to right. rationalize right. the recreation of these systems. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you made my exact point that that this thing, this organism called supremacy culture, which is kind of like an octopus, right? It has all all different sorts of tentacles, right? <laughs> and 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 I don't know if you know anything about octopus, but when you if you if you cut off a limb of an octopus, it regenerates. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly how supremacy culture works, which has engineered in it a particular sort of theological orientation, theological imagination, which extends to things like anthropology, um, political ideology, and so forth. But but you you've said it exactly that that these laws are an adaptation of supremacy culture for today. They've been rationalized. Um, and it's, and it's because supremacy culture is so easily adaptable. You know, it's a little bit like slime, you know, mm -hmm. like it just is always there and never goes away. And, and what we are trying to do both in our collaborative project and on the podcast is not only do some really deep education, but also connect the dots and invite people to get their hands dirty. Because if we don't mobilize people, if we don't invite people into the streets, into the homes of migrants or refugees, a, we won't be able to humanize the struggle, and B, we won't be able to build the kind of coalitions that are needed to actually achieve the kind of healing on a social scale that we so desperately are in need. Now, I know that you are very busy uh, in Georgia, and you do lots of work, and we know a lot of the same people, which I am grateful for. I'm just curious if you could, for those listeners in the Georgia area, if you could let us know, how can we get our hands dirty in that community so that we can begin to mobilize people and, and, and get our hands dirty with the work? I think I understand your question. <laughs> uh, I think I do want to touch on what you mentioned about coalition building and getting our hands dirty. And the the need to have these extremely difficult dialogues across um, racial identity. And, and I think Dr. Robin and I have spoke about it being biracial, that we are accustomed to translating. We're accustomed to being misplaced constantly, having to translate across communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, while I'm a U.S. citizen by the accidental location of my birth, that is how I'm a U.S. citizen, um, I come into the space of freedom with that privilege, but I also come in with, um, you know, the superpower of encouraging people to 
to make mistakes, to have these difficult dialogues, to learn from one another. Um, and in a in an education space that isn't about um, getting a degree or solely economic advancement, but really about liberating our minds. And that is why Freedom U is inherently an interracial space. Most of our students, um, about three quarters come from Mexico, but many of our students come from Central and South America, the Caribbean, West Africa, Southeast Asia. And our faculty are incredibly diverse, um, our staff. Um, and, and in this very rare space, we can have these dialogues. So I encourage people to have these dialogues wherever they are. Of course, you don't need to come to Atlanta, <laughs> but you can have these dialogues. And I want to emphasize, um, you know, what Dr. Robin said about getting our hands dirty and, but also how white supremacy culture is, is slimy. It's not only slimy, it's, it's tempting um, yeah. to join the supremacy culture in the Asian American community um, you know, hopefully within the last year or two, our community has recognized that, you know, proximity to whiteness will not save us. Right. White skin, um, and not all Asians are light skinned, of course, many Asians identify as brown, Southeast Asians need to be a part of these conversations, but specifically the quote China virus and focusing on East Asians, proximity to whiteness doesn't protect us and has never protected us. Looking at the Japanese internment, for example, the 120,000 people who were, you know, pulled from their homes and their jobs and denied all of their, their rights were two thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Citizenship right. will protect us. Right. And understanding and especially in this Latinx and Asian American studies class at Freedom U, you know, studying um, the Chinese Exclusion Act is necessary for understanding the, the creation of immigrant inspections of immigrant surveillance, of the requirement of documentation, of deportation. This started by practicing on the Asian American community, right? And on the Asian community in the United States. And another thing I want to mention is just to counter the, the master narrative that has developed after these shootings. Again, it generally tends to be a, about COVID or men talking about these issues, but again, it's gendered and understanding how anti-Asian racism has always been gendered is most apparent in understanding the first federal immigration law based on exclusion was targeting Asian women. And it was the Page Act of 1875, which barred the entry of Chinese women. And we, in understanding history, we can also understand the history of these overlapping racisms. We can also understand the basis for our solidarity today. For example, why why did the U.S. in our first restrictive immigration policy want to ban Chinese women? It's because eight years previous was the 14th Amendment in birthright citizenship. That came as a result of the Civil War, but also obviously advocacy and mobilization of Black people in the United States for the right to citizenship in this country. But as a result, the, the quote-unquote yellow peril and the threat of Chinese immigrants is that the Chinese women were having babies of Chinese descent who are now U.S. citizens. So right. they were seen as a threat to white supremacy. But of course, the male bodies were needed to create the transcontinental railroads, to right. create the railroads um, that would then deport people to Mexico, right? <laughs> the Trans-Pacific Railroad. And so all of these histories are intersected, and we can only have these conversations in dialogue with one another, right? Um, how the enslavement of people of African descent and 
the immense racialized violence against black people in this country served as a blueprint, right, for the treatment of Chinese uh, immigrants in the United States, all Asian immigrants in the United States, and how, again, it was adapted and how deportation and the deportation machine was adapted um, through Chinese exclusion and how that now impacts primarily Latinx um, communities. But I do also want to dispel the notion that like Latinx equals undocumented or undocumented equals Latinx when the fastest growing population of the undocumented community is Asian, Mm. right? And that shows how, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment has a racialized purpose, right? right? And these conversations cannot take place in isolation because power, again, with its tentacles is adapting and practicing a one group and then adapting it for another. Right. And if we're constantly in these silos, we will never be able to be one step ahead of that octopus. Right. Yeah. Um, and to take one more moment to talk about, you know, I, I started this conversation talking about how racism against Asians is different. And I want to expand on that just for a moment. Um, and the, the, the courage it takes to talk about difference, um, I think is, is what I want to encourage listeners to do as well. Um, you know, there's a tendency to just talk about how we're the same. And, you know, fundamentally, that's what human rights is about. We're all human beings. But as human beings, we experience things very differently based on our race, based on our gender, based on our physical abilities, all these other types of difference based on our citizenship. And I want to take, talk about how anti-Asian violence and racism is just different. Um, I want to talk about how, um, and I'm speaking, yes, as an Asian American, but also, you know, inspired by Asian American scholarship um, and Asian American studies, is that anti-Asian violence is often sloppy. What I mean by that is that members of Asian ethnic groups are often mistaken for members of other ethnic groups. Um, And we see this with the anti-Asian sentiment with COVID, that because in the U.S. racial imagination, all Asians are the same and indistinguishable, that when any Asian ethnic group Um, whether their government does something or, of course, there's, um, you know, a a virus that starts in one of these countries, all Asians are at risk for violence, right? And there was um, a a killing in uh, Coral Springs, Florida, 1992, against Luen Fan Nguyen, who um, was beaten and and killed. And the, the words that were used against them was, Um, excuse this language, but chink, Viet Cong, and Sayonara, right? And like all three (laughs) various types of racism um, and different types of anti-Asian sentiment. But that's how we experience racism is that once there's anti-Asian sentiment towards Vietnamese or Chinese, Japanese people are also scared, (laughs) right? Um, And that's a a kind of difference that um, Asian Americans, their racism and anti-Asian racism may be experienced. Another is like perceived economic competition um, and seeing many Asian countries as um, competition um, with the United States and how, you know, there's been cases of anti-Asian violence, um, you know, in the specifically in the 80s and 90s um, in Detroit and auto workers, um, not always white, you know, beating up Asian people because of perceived competition with Toyota, right? And so this perceived economic competition is at the heart of some anti-Asian violence. Another, which is critical, is the nativist 
component of anti-Asian violence um, that go home isn't inherently racist, but understanding again, outside of this black white binary that Asians and Latinx people often experience racism in terms of nativist racism of go home, you don't belong, right? And it's specifically Asians as opposed to Latinx and, and black people are also racialized as permanently foreign, permanently foreign, which is why no matter where Asian Americans, whether they are born in Asia, born in the United States, biracial or not, are consistently asked, where are you really from? Right. And it emphasizes constantly that they don't actually belong here. And this is, again, a result of policy and Asian exclusion for decades in this country. 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, it was extended to all Asians except for Filipinos in 1917. And again, the sloppiness of anti-Asian racism is also apparent in this history. And finally, I want to talk about patriotic racism and the fact that the United States has been in constant wars against countries in Asia and Central Asia for the last 80 years. And creating this idea, again, this rationalizing, this normalizing of racism, that Asians don't really belong, that they're foreign, is necessary in order to justify the, the constant bombing and uh, presence, US military presence throughout Asia. And again, the flip side of that is also um, you know, what happens to sex tourism and the white sexual imperialism in these countries once U.S. military presence is there. And, and this, again, isn't worse or better. Any other kind of qualitative aspect of racism is just different. It's a different form of racism, but it's no less painful to the people who experience it. And it's devastating that it has to take murder in order for a country to be courageous enough to talk about these things, right? Um, but, you know, this is where we are and at least these conversations are taking place. And, and I'm grateful for the two of you for opening up these dialogues and these really painful, but courageous and necessary dialogues um, across um, racial identities. Thank you for that. I, I, I wish that we could just be neighbors so that we could talk on the porch and have these conversations <laughs> because I always love listening to your wisdom. Um, thank you for all of that. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Soltis. We are, um, we just, I sit in a, an immense amount of gratitude right now for the way that you have so wonderfully shared both your story and um, your you know, what I would only otherwise term as a call to action and a call to understanding mm -hmm. um, yes. for those of us that, that listen and for our listeners across the world. Um, I would love for you to share with those listeners um, how they can um, be in contact with you or how they can learn more about your scholarship and the work that you are doing at Freedom University. What's the best place for them to, to find out that information? Sure. Uh, I want to make clear that I am not a public speaker. I do not go on tours. I'm a teacher. I teach. That's what I do. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't publish. I don't yeah, go on book tours, maybe in my next life. Um, but right now I'm a teacher and I'm the director at Freedom University. Uh, and our website um, is www.freedom-university.org. 
You can follow us on our really cute Instagram page, which is at FU underscore Georgia. Of course, Freedom University has the best school acronym. That I, I was going to say, that is so perfect. <laughs> yes, please. FU underscore Georgia. Our Twitter as well. Um, and if you want to follow me on my Instagram, it's mainly, um, since I've been living alone for 14 months, it's mainly photos of me and my three dogs. Um, but you can follow me at Coco Soltis, and that is what my nephew calls me, Auntie Coco. So I'm at Coco Soltis. Our, um, you can follow Freedom University at Freedom U, sorry, at FU underscore Georgia. Well, I know that um, you you don't, do the same type of public work that I do, mm-hmm. but I have found every time that we are in public conversation that you are also teaching and living out your vocational call in that way. And so I hope that you will become a friend of the podcast so that you could also, when you have time and bandwidth and capacity, teach on this platform and help our listeners connect the dots because uh, I believe in the politics of radical difference. And Mm -hmm. until we achieve that radical difference in our coalitional politics and in our lived experience, we won't achieve and we won't live in the kind of world we long to inhabit. And so I am grateful that you're here. I'm grateful to be connected with you. I can't wait to see you the -hmm. next time I come to Atlanta um, I'm looking forward to that cafecito with you. Gracias. And thank you so much for inviting me. I always learn so much from, from you, Dr. Robin. And um, it was nice to meet you, Anna. Likewise. And also, um, I just really encourage uh, people to continue having these conversations, even when the hashtags fade, um, that you know, Asian Americans are here. We've been here, <laughs> despite uh, Chinese Exclusion Act. Asiatic Bard Zone Act and, you know, yeah. all of these laws that have been designed to keep us out of the public sphere. Uh, one thing I mentioned um, briefly uh, at the beginning of the Asian American Studies class at Freedom U is um, one in three human beings is an Asian woman. Mm. Mm. Can you name any? And we just sat in silence. <laughs> yeah. A couple comedians came up, but when we think of it in those terms, the invisibility right. um, and even the invisibility um, of Asian women in their deaths, I think is is what was most heartbreaking about um, these acts of violence. Yes. So I encourage people to say their names, remember their names. Um, Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Kim Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Young A Yu, Xiao Jie Tan, Dao Yo Fang, and uh, the two others who were not of Asian descent, Delana Ashley Yan, Paul Andre Michaels, and LCS Hernandez Ortiz, who was also shot and injured uh, in these shootings in Atlanta. Um, but thank you for your love, um, for inviting me here um, and sending um, big hugs to all of your listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Soltis. Dr. Robin, that's a beautiful place for us to exit this episode. Friends, as a reminder, you can follow Activist Theology at Activist Theology everywhere you are social online. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. And we will be back next week for another uh, impactful episode of Standing in Solidarity with our Asian kin. And Dr. Robin, until then, 
we have our orders. We know what's next in this work and it's up to us and it's up to all of you out there to be a part of that work and to get your hands dirty in it. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So early, they show me no-